This is Life in the Passing Lane, an audio biography by me. I'm Alex Bennett. Well, it's been a while since I did the, did the last episode of uh, Life in the Passing Lane. This is episode 70, and the last two were called I've Got Cancer. I don't know what to call this one. I'm probably going to call it I've Got Cancer and Beyond. Let me explain. It's been two years since I did one of these episodes, and one of the reasons I waited two years is you really don't know the outcome of what happened, but now I have a clearer vision of that. There was another point here at which it was very important that I get through another big process in my life, which we will talk about on this episode. So let's just call it I've Got Cancer and Beyond. So as you remember last time, I went and got all the radiation bombarding me. I went to five sessions of what they call, well, some people call it cyber knife. It's actually called stereotatic. And uh, it's, uh, it's just beam, external beam radiation uh, in which you lie there and you don't feel a damn thing and they zap you and you're, you're good to go. Well, I did those five sittings for this, uh, or lyings or whatever, sessions of this particular therapy, and, uh, you know, that was over that. So the next thing I had to do was go in about two weeks later and get my seeds implanted. Now, this is a thing called brachytherapy, which is a form of radiation, but it's where the doctor goes into your prostate and deposits about a 100 rice-sized seeds. Very difficult for me to say at this point. rice sized seeds and they place them in the prostate and uh, it's considered a pretty good form of uh, of, of, uh, radiation in fact my particular doctor who i went to this oncologist if i didn't tell you in the last episode because i don't remember two years ago uh, he was maybe the best guy when it came to seed implantation and for results. A good example of that result would be he was the guy who took care of Rudy Giuliani when he had prostate cancer. Remember they put seeds in him? Well, this was the guy who was in there shoving those seeds in, and therefore, to this day, we still have Rudy Giuliani to put up with. Anyway, so it is time for me to go in and get the seeds. And I go in and I sign in and uh, they, uh, you know, they take you into this room and they take your temperature and your vitals and they ask you a dozen questions and it takes forever. And then they give you this uh, paper gown or whatever it is to put on and these little, little, little surgical shoes and, or slippers and you go in and uh, just wait. And you wait. And my wife, uh, Marjorie, was with me, so I waited with her. And we waited, and we waited, and we waited. And then all of a sudden, nurse sticks her head in the door and says, uh, the uh, surgery's been canceled. What? I'm all dressed, ready for it. My mind is prepared for it, and you're canceling it? She says, the doctor will be down shortly to tell you what's going on. So about a half hour later, the doctor comes down, and uh, he's, a, he's a very good doctor. He's a very uh, straightforward, and he's kind of abrupt, but you know he knows what he's doing. And he says, sometimes I get to hate this hospital, which was Mount Sinai, because sometimes they really screw up badly. He says, I'm doing this thing called brachytherapy, and we have to put a, a 
the thing that goes in your perineum. That's that's what we used to call the taint that's between your balls and your penis, okay? And not your balls and your ass, excuse me. That little area is called the perineum, and I don't want to get too much into this because it could get some people queasy, but they have to put this plate there, and then he uses that to go into the prostate and start depositing the seeds. They didn't have that part. They forgot to order it. Not his particular division, but the people who do the procuring for this sort of thing, they forgot. He said, go home, I'll call you, I'll let you know when. Now this was on, uh, I have the date here, uh, February 27th, or 25th rather, of 2020. February 25th of 2020. Um, So he says, go home, I'll call you and we'll set up another date so he then calls me and he sets up a date for a week later okay so now we're up to march 3rd all right and i go back in again and i sign in and i go through the whole sign in procedure and i go into the room with the woman and who's asking me all kinds of questions and taking my vitals and uh, uh then hands me my wardrobe for the afternoon which is of course again the you know the the, the slippers and the, the gown. I mean, it just, it, they're terrible things to wear because you nobody looks fashionable in them, okay? Anyway, I'm uh, sitting there waiting, and I'm waiting for another, you know, like, hey, it's not going to go on. But then I get the call, and they say, the doctor, uh, nurse comes in, says, follow me, and we go up, and we, I think, I, I can't remember, did they put me in a wheelchair or not? I think they do put you in a wheelchair. I don't know why. I could walk. But I think they did a wheelchair. It's vague to me now because it's two years ago. But anyway, they take me up about five floors, and they take me into what apparently is an operating area, and there's my doctor. And he says, uh, okay, ready for this? I said, uh, is anybody ever ready for this? He says, no, but, you know, it's not going to be any real problem. He said, you're not going to feel a thing. He said, we're going to uh, deaden the lower half of your body. I said, I thought I was going to be put out. Because I always looked forward to being put out because they used propofol, the same thing that killed Michael Jackson. But I figured, hey, that's pretty cool. You know, I like being put out like that. And uh, he says, no, we're not going to put you out because you're too old. Now, I'm 80 years old by this time. No, we're not going to put you out. You're too old. And there could be complications if we put you out. Okay. So the anesthetist um, says to me, uh, "Yeah, we're going to we're going to lo- we're going to give you a spinal." And I went, "Oh, a spinal! Ew, that sounds yucky." Anyway, he says, "Hey, you won't feel it." He says, "We're going to give you a spinal. Then everything's going to be dead from your waist down." I said, "Well, you know, at this point in my life, most of it is anyway." And anyway, so he said, and then we'll. Uh, We'll, uh, wheel you, we'll wheel you in there, then we'll ply the, uh, the spinal, and then uh, you'll just lie there, and we'll do what we do, and we'll give, you, uh, we'll give you a sedative, we'll give you some Valium, intravenous Valium, so you're in kind of a twilight zone, and uh, uh, it'll be done. So anyway, we go in, and I figure the spinal's going to hurt like hell, but they put this thing on my back, a few things like that, a little, little pinch, that's about it. And then all of a sudden, a bunch of people come over and they pick me up and put me on the uh, on the gurney where they're going to operate on me. 
and uh, uh, I, I'm, I don't know what's happening. I don't know whether I'm losing any feeling to the bottom of my bottom half of my body, but apparently, I uh, wasn't. I was rather, uh, but I didn't know it because you know I can't tell, right? And I think at one point I tried to lift my foot. And and it started to feel like I couldn't lift the foot, or if I was lifting it, I couldn't feel it going up. All right, so that I was getting dead down there. And uh, so the doctor comes in and he spreads my legs and he does whatever he's doing down there. He's doing a whole bunch of things, and I'm in kind of this la la land. But what what you never get to hear when you're being operated on is what's going on in the operating room while you're being operated on because usually you're out you're not going to hear anything but in this case i've just got valium in me and uh, i can hear everything that's going on and i always thought that it was like on tv where the doctor goes sutures scalpel oh mop my brow oh yes hand me another uh, this thing or hand me another that thing instead what i'm hearing is so bob what are you doing this weekend oh i don't know we're going to go to the shore I'm going. I'm thinking to myself, are they working on me or are they discussing their dinner plans? But anyway, they, he works on me for about, I guess it was 45 minutes, something like that it takes. And then all of a sudden, I'm. Uh, they say, You're, we're done. See you later. Come back in a week and we'll talk to you. Uh, I'm wheeled down to a recovery room. And... Uh, then I am wheeled into another recovery room uh, because, uh, and then I'm sitting there, lying there, waiting. And the uh, the nurse, who I don't know, she kind of reminded me of Nurse Ratchet, you know, in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, <laughs> she was kind of like a Nazi of a nurse. Well, you can't leave until you can pee. Well, I go, I can't even stand nothing. I couldn't. You know, I have a friend, his name is Patrick, and he's a paraplegic. And I've always, you know, I've always taken a, a certain pity on, on Patrick, but he doesn't need any pity. He's a very self-sufficient human being um, who doesn't really believe he's a paraplegic. But I began to understand, however tentative, the feeling of not being able to feel anything below your waist is, Okay. And uh, I was just lying there wanting to get out of there, but I can't get out of there because the bottom of half of me isn't working, and I can't leave till I can get up and go to the bathroom and take a pee. If you can't take a pee, if you can't fill this little thing uh, uh, up to a certain level, like one, two centimeters, I don't know what the amount is, uh, up to this line, you can't leave till you can pee up to that line. Well, you know, I, I don't know about you, but whenever a doctor has forced me to pee into a cup, it's harder for me uh, than uh, the normal people because I get all uptight about, oh, I've got to go in the cup. I've got to go in the cup. So but first of all, I've got to get to the bathroom, and I can't do that because I'm dead below the waist. And we're, what, about a couple hours pass, and I'm still, I'm still dead down there. I'm figuring... Maybe this is it. I'm a paraplegic for the rest of my life. Well, all of a sudden, I can start feeling my legs, and I can start doing this and that. And the nurse is going, well, don't leave yet. You're not ready to go. You you haven't gotten off of that. I said, I'm going to that damn bathroom. Give me that damn cup. I'm going to go in there, and I'm going to pee. All right? 
and I was getting really nasty. I, 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 I must, they must have a little, you know, if they put those little notes on their, uh, on your file, they probably says very bad when it comes to recovery. Okay. And um, finally, I was able to get out. I pulled out some of the things that were in me. And, oh, and I also had a catheter. I had a catheter they put in there. And when they were through, they put a catheter in my yeah, penis. Why, why can't I say penis? It hurts when I say catheter and penis. But anyway, uh, but she said, I have to remove the catheter first. you know. And she then goes in and yanks this thing out. And I go, okay. You know, because I was I was trying to get out, and I was hooked to something, and it was because my penis was hooked to whatever the catheter was hooked to. Anyway, is this some of this making you queasy? I hope not. This is just you know, none of this was hurting. None of this was as bad as it sounds. Okay, when you say oh uh, catheter and penis, you go Ugh. and uh, but it's not it's not that bad. Anyway, I hobble off to the bathroom. And I can't get it up to this line, and I'm really going, I'm going to be in, what are they going to do? If I want to go home, don't I have the right to go home? I have not lost all my rights and privileges of being an American. If I can't pee up to this level, then I'm going home anyway. Well, I couldn't get it up to the level, and I hobble back to her, and I could only get it this much. She says, that's enough. Put on your clothes. Get the hell out of here. And we left and went home. Okay. Well, now we've got to find out, what, is this thing working or isn't it working? Well, let me explain something to you, and this is really the, I guess if there is a, a God, which I don't believe in, and he's watching over me, which I don't believe in, then he was watching over me that day because I got my seed implants. If we had somehow waited a week I would have never been able to get the seed implants. And you're saying, why? They run out of seeds? What? No. There's a little thing that happened called COVID. All of a sudden, the hospitals, especially the one I was in, started filling up with people with this, with this mysterious you know, disease. And they made a rule that any elective surgery couldn't happen in these hospitals, that they had to be ready to take in all the patients for COVID. So had I waited one week, I would not have been able to get that seed implant. So having him cancel it one week, that was scary enough. But then that day that I got it, that was almost one of the last days when these hospitals were doing my kind of operation. I would have had to wait till the fall or maybe the winter before I would have been able to get it. But anyway, I got it. And a week later, I went in. They did a bunch of checking on me, and they said, uh, "Come see us in uh, in three months, and uh, we'll do uh, we'll do blood work. We'll do uh, uh, all kinds of things. We we want to once again put you in the CT scan to see if the radiation worked and how the seeds seeds worked." And I said, "Okay, I will." Well, COVID hit, and three months passed, and by that time. I wasn't leaving the house. These were the early days where if you got a package from Amazon, you were spraying it with disinfectant because you didn't want it to give you, give you uh, uh, COVID. So, I mean, we were really, we were hunkered down. We were not leaving the house. We weren't even going out the door into our lobby, okay? That's it. We were through. And uh, I got a hold of the doctor and I said, I can't go to this. I said, what would you like me to do? They said, go down to this uh, Quest, which is a 
a lab and, and just get a blood test so we have blood work on you and then in about another three months if things are better we'll have you come down so i did the blood test i don't know how it turned out i didn't hear from the doctor at all so i assume it was was okay all right so now another three months pass and uh, they say it's cl- it's clear for you to come here uh it, it's pretty safe everybody's wearing masks everybody is uh, tested uh and they were doing a lot of things because it was a hospital so they said if you come in here this part of the hospital does not see covid patients uh, nowhere in this building do we take in covid patients so you don't have to worry about it so come on down and take your tests and so on so i went down and they, what they do is they always give you a blood test because you're testing for your PSA. And if your PSA normally is like a 2.5 or a 1, uh, they don't worry about anything. When it starts heading up towards 4, they worry about it. In my case, if there's even a large amount of PSA, any, any real amount of PSA, like over a 1, uh, they start to worry because they think it didn't go away. All right? So they gave me a test for that, and they put me under the in the CT scan again to look at the work that my doctor had done. He was very happy with what he saw, and uh, they sent me home. And the results came back from my PSA test, and guess what? No detectable PSA. It went from like a 4.5 to no detectable PSA. That's where you want to keep it, Okay. And we went through the whole COVID thing. And I'm going to take out a moment about that. I don't think that in my whole life I've ever been afraid of anything more than I've been afraid of COVID. Let's go back to that time. This is 2020, okay? If you got COVID and you were my age, you may as well start, you know, writing your will because it was just terrible, okay? And uh, uh, I didn't go out. I didn't go out for most of a year. I did not go out. I think I started peeking my head out the door the day I got my first COVID shot. I actually had to go back a month later and get a second one. This was in a, a, a year from when I had my uh, uh, prostate work done, about 11 months. And uh, they finally came out with the vaccine. And after I took my second shot, I felt it was safer to go outside, still with a mask and all of that, but I didn't have that fear. But during that year, the fear that I had, where this thing, you know, we didn't know how you got it exactly. You know, could you get it from a package from UPS? We didn't know. So we were spraying everything, and it sat in our foyer for like a week before we opened it, all right? So, I mean, things like that, we were just, we didn't see friends, we didn't entertain anybody in our apartment. Thank God we have a huge apartment, so my wife and I weren't ready to kill each other, and pretty much we hunkered down for a year here. And uh, that, as you know, I don't have to tell you, you know, I can sit here and tell you how terrible it was for us, and we were in one of the most infected cities in the United States. Um... But, I mean, you've gone through it, too, so you know what I'm talking about. And if you're older and you're more in a uh, age range where uh, death could be definitely imminent if you aren't vaccinated, uh, you're afraid. You have a great deal of fear, and it's not unreasonable fear. But anyway, 
Uh, we got our second shot, and we felt a little easier for us to get up and go out and do what we wanted to do, okay? And um, it, uh, you know, one thing led to another. Then I, then I didn't get any calls from my doctor. Um, I, I, my, the, the oncologist who planted the seeds. No more calls of, like, go get a PSA test or whatever. And I finally got a hold of my urologist the guy who, who found the cancer in the first place, and I said, he, he hasn't sent me anything to do a follow-up, you know. He said, forget about him. He said, he's your oncologist. He's at Mount Sinai. He did what he had to do. He's through with you. Come back to me. I'll give you all the tests. I'll be watching over you, okay? And uh, so I went to him. And I, now I'm kind of anticipatory because I went, I got that second PSA test, and it was the second one, that I got at the at uh, Mount Sinai when I got all the blood work and everything was uh, was again negligible, non-detectable. They call it okay. So he did a blood test on me and did all the other checking he had to do, non-detectable. All right, so now I come back. I guess, he says do another one in in I think six months. Okay, so I did another one in six months, and he said, hmm, okay. Non-detectable. Really? You mean there's no PSA there? He says, non-detectable. He says, that's what you want with this radiation stuff. I said, cool. So now he says, come back in nine months. All right? So nine months pass, and that was, uh, uh, let's see here, March of uh, 2022. And I go in, and I've got a few problems now. I have problems with, like, uh, hurts a little bit when I pee, you know, uh, and uh, uh, just little things like that, you know. And uh, I, I go in and I ask him about this. I'm really worried about it. I'm worried that that's something really bad. And he said, no, that usually happens from the radiation. He said, take ibuprofen. That might help a little bit with it. But, you know, you, if you can live with it, you live with it, you know. He said, that, that's an outcome. It, it may diminish with time. And I said, oh, okay. Well, I said, now that I know what it is, I'm not going to worry about it as much. And then uh, he said, well, we'll send out and see what the blood work is. And I'm now I'm really frightened about this because, you know, the blood work is the blood work. And if it comes back even up a little bit, we got a problem. And so I, he says, I'll have the results for you tomorrow. Well, he not only had them for me the next day, he, had, he called me at a quarter of nine in the morning where the phone woke me up and I accidentally pushed the wrong button on the phone in my haze and, and missed him. So then I called him back and she said, well, I'll go get him. And uh, she goes off the line, she comes back on, she says, he's on another line, but just wanted me to tell you, no detectable PSA. This means I've gone two years with no detectable PSA, which I've read online because, of course, that's where you find out all about medicine, right? But online, it says if you go for two years with no detectable PSA, you can almost consider yourself cured. Okay. So I feel good about that. And now I can breathe a little easier, and I'm not worried as much as I was worried. Uh, and I got through COVID, and now I'm two years past this uh, little operation of mine. And uh, it's, it's, it's terrific. You know, I'm, I'm very happy about that. Not... You know, you got to knock on wood. You never know. It could come back. could do a lot of other things. But I hope I never have to do another episode 
of Life in the Passing Lane called I've Got Cancer. But this one is I've Got Cancer and Beyond. This has been Life in the Passing Lane, an audiobiography by me. I'm Alex Bennett.